Now, if you were explaining transfer pricing to a confused relative at Thanksgiving and they asked, isn't that kind of like tariffs? You might think to yourself, well, a little like the difference between a fur coat and wearing a dead carcass of an animal you killed with your own bare hands to stay warm for the winter. There's a lot of overlap, but I'm not really sure anyone has any business calling them the same thing. Welcome back, everyone, to the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Deep Dive Transfer Pricing Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello, and in this analogy, I'm not quite sure which is transfer pricing between the fur coat and the animal carcass, but for a more nuanced discussion of the differences between the very different ways that customs officers and tax revenue agents see the world, involving no gross metaphors whatsoever, we have cross-border solutions own Hosker Hugenberg and chief economist Mimi Song on today's program. They will be talking about not only the many crossroads of tariffs and transfer pricing, but also the impact increased tit-for-tat taxes on imports between countries in recent years has had on transfer pricing. And in speaking of being able to tell the difference between fur coats and basic survival skills from the standpoint of an Excel doc, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this program. Send all three code words to The Fiona Show at XPS. Again, that's the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Things are brewing in the United Kingdom, and it isn't just the tea. Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, or HMRC, is considering adopting the OECD approach for transfer pricing. As it stands, UK businesses already have to substantiate their transfer pricing positions, but this would be a step up. The adoption would tighten the compliance parameters, enforcing specific standardized documentation. There's also talk of an international dealing schedule, an annual report aligned with the tax return schedule. It would cover details about related party transactions, along with restructuring transfer pricing methodologies and financial matters. The consultation is open to comments until June 1st. And Poland is giving tax havens the cold shoulder. The country recently requested public comments on draft guidance to clarify new reporting obligations for taxpayers doing business in tax havens entered into force on January 1st, 2021. Per the guidance, the threshold for transfer pricing documentation requirements for normal controlled transactions is 2 million Polish zloty or 518,000 U.S. dollars. For transactions conducted with a person or entity in a tax haven, the threshold is around 100,000 Polish zloty or 26,000 U.S. dollars. The threshold stands at around 500,000 zloty or 130,000 U.S. dollars if conducted with a beneficial owner. When it comes to documenting the transaction, it's the same information found in the local file, the functional analysis, comparability analysis, and key financial information. While tax havens may be a great place to vacation, who doesn't love Barbados, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Fiji, they're becoming increasingly monitored in transfer pricing. Poland's keeping a watchful eye on the situation, and we wouldn't be surprised if other countries are too. Taxpayers will be getting some intel from Intel, its subsidiary that is. The IRS is hard at work on a sub-regulatory guidance to iron out questions from the Altera case, Intel's subsidiary. 
in case you've been living under a rock. That case was a legal battle waged over stock-based compensation in cost-sharing agreements. Altero was opposed to including stock-based compensation in its agreements, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against it. The Supreme Court refused to hear its appeal last June. The guidance comes at a perfect time as stock-based compensation becomes a hot-button issue in recent litigation. IRS Associate Chief Counsel Peter Blessing addressed the topic at a recent American Bar Association tax conference, saying that case had, quote, fallout issues and it's important to get those right, unquote. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Tariffs, the ultimate disruption to international business and trade, not to mention transfer pricing. On this episode, we're examining how tariffs affect transfer pricing and ways multinationals can brace themselves for impact. We're joined today by Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Hosker Hugenberg. And I'm going to hand things off to Mimi for this conversation. Fantastic. I'm excited to talk about Transfer pricing and tariffs today, right, Hasker? <laughs> it's yeah. it's one of those topics that I think, to be honest, transfer pricing practitioners in some ways might avoid. Let's first talk about tariffs in the U.S. We want to level set expectations here in terms of what, what are we talking about with tariffs, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, tariffs are levied upon import by you know, countries, governments, and paid by the importers. Uh, Tariff rate depends on the country of origin, product classifications, and as per the rules of, in this case, the United States. And companies usually account for tariff cost on imported products, cost in its cost of goods sold. And uh, tariffs are typically overseen by you know, specific administrative bodies that either sit within the tax administration or even separate in the U.S. as the Customs and, and Border Patrol. It's funny because tariffs were actually pretty high during the Trump administration. I think there was like a 25% tariff on steel, 10% aluminum, and there was a lot of tension, especially between the U.S. and China as it related to those tariffs, right? A little bit of trade tension. The current tariff landscape under the Biden administration, I'm anticipating that it's actually going to look a little bit better than what it was before. Um, yeah, you know, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, albeit that, you know, American industries that, that use, you know, steel and, and aluminium say that these tariffs have increased their costs and narrowed their profits and 
make it harder to compete globally. But yeah, I mean, in, I think in February of this year, the Biden administration, uh, you know, even reinstated tariffs on aluminium import from the United Arab Emirates. You know, it still has its, its misgivings and it, it, it certainly has a, a serious impact on, on business. So the Biden administration is, is going to relieve tariff burdens across a variety of industries, you know, including aviation, uh, food, beverage, and travel goods. It is yeah. improving, but it's still an important factor. And also, not unimportant, uh, you know, the US and the uh, European Union uh, will suspend tariffs you know, for four months as of February. And I think part of that probably was initiated in light of the pandemic situation, right? And just helping companies get back to some sense of normalcy, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it, and it, but I think also, I think it's, it's a reaction to the change in administration in the United States, probably just looking at it from more of a European view on things. So that hoping that it will go back to, you know, the the pre-Trump administration period where, you know, tariffs or the, the goal of countries was more to reduce tariffs rather than use it as a political instrument. I think time will tell on that point. Yeah, I agree with that. So let's take a look at the big picture for a minute, right? When it comes to transfer pricing and tariffs, you know, customs and, and customs related taxes versus transfer pricing related implications. Yeah. What are the, the complications? Well, I mean, first, that's more a wording thing. I mean, in the United States, you always talk about tariffs. You know, the rest of the world, typically, I think, will use the phrase you know, custom duties. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a, a definition thing. So, but there are two sets of rules. You know, you have rules that apply to tariffs or customs and on transfer pricing. Uh, transfer pricing, typically, you know, uh, you use for taxation, direct taxation, how to allocate profits ultimately to entities on on the basis of which they pay tax. Customs, you know, want to look at value in order to apply customs on it, which is a direct cost that, you know, is levied by by certain governments. And in, in many countries, as you already indicated, there are two different administrative bodies that actually deal with them. Tax authorities, you know, dealing with corporate income tax, direct taxation, and the custom offices. And, and they can have conflicting objectives. It can make cross-border trades overly complicated and, and very costly, including also, you know, very large cost of administration. The actual difference in rules is that direct tax authorities typically follow what's called the arm's length principle, as we know, for transfer pricing, and that's based on the OECD guidelines. Whilst custom authorities apply provisions from the World Trade Organization from their custom valuation agreement when it comes to determining methods of valuation, what is subject to a custom, et cetera. And, And on top of that, the way these international provisions, whether it's OECD guidelines or World Trade Organization agreements, are actually then applied at a national level will also complicate things. Knowing that countries you know, have the habit of putting their own swing on things when they implement these international guidelines or rules into their own 
rules and regulations. So you have to, well, besides that, you also have to consider policy objectives, uh, the timing for all the you know, valuations, the various valuation methods that are being being applied, documentation requirements, and also, you know, how to deal with any controversy in relation to either customs or transfer pricing as they follow different rules, depending again per country. Right. So, you know, it's a it's 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 a complicated web, I would even say, to, to really maneuver through that from a customs and from a tax perspective. Interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is customs. Again, our first CPE code word for this episode is customs. Keeping it easy. We'll get more complicated later. Back to our conversation. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that question a lot, right, from different taxpayers or multinationals. I wonder, how do we align, if we have to at all, right, the transfer price and, and the customs-related duties? And And there's always this question of, like, should they align? Do they always diverge? You know, the answer today is they're treated sort of very separately and distinctly. One is the right hand, one is the left hand. And if they don't match, it doesn't necessarily matter, right? Well, no, I mean, but, but it is important to understand the difference in objectives. You know, I mean, the custom authority objective is to ensure that all the appropriate elements are included in the customs value and that the value is not understated. Whereas in the same country, let's say of the importer, the tax authorities' objective is more to ensure that the transfer price or the arms tax price does not include inappropriate elements and is not overstated. So mm -hmm. there is this, this tension because it, you, know, you pull in opposite directions if that's a right phrase. The motivations are different. I think this, yeah. this, this is worth highlighting once again. Customs wants to make sure that the prices are not undervalued. Exactly. Transfer pricing in a lot of ways, at least from a unilateral perspective, they want to make sure, the tax authority wants to make sure that the prices are not overvalued. Exactly. You know, the rules as it relates to the valuation of the products that are being purchased, at least for the application of customs duties, they're probably not as rigid as, as they are for transfer pricing purposes, right? The application of the arm's length standard versus what would be considered a market price, right? Or the applicable price for customs purposes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, although there are obviously distinct differences in the sense that for when you look at, at prices, arm's length price for transfer pricing purposes, mm -hmm. you typically look at the price of goods over a period of time, one financial year. Whereas for customs purposes, you look at Point each time. and every you know, single transaction or shipment. Yeah. And each and every single shipment should be at the right price from a customs perspective. You know, because the customs are levied on each and every of those transactions where for TP purposes, you obviously that's on a more of a financial year, you know, application where you look at and you want to ensure that the profit that a company reports in its annual accounts, in its statutory accounts, is you know at arm's length. So there are some distinct differences there, and also the methods. I would say, although 
you can probably rely, you know, the similar methods that at least, you know, on, on a high level can be applied. But there are obviously distinct differences. I think, you know, one of the things I want to highlight out of what you said essentially is that the customs prices are based on point in time transaction values, which could fluctuate, right? If you were selling, you know, especially commodities, you see fluctuations in prices. So it could, timing could definitely have an impact. And, and, and customs valuations, they don't really care about profitability, right? No, they just look at a single point in time, you know, when the transaction occurred, when the shipment came in, what is the right price at that time? without looking at what the importer of the good actually ultimately for that financial year reports as a, as a profit. So yeah, that's where there was a very distinct difference. You had read when I was quoted in one of the articles in Forbes that talked about the whole no deal Brexit situation and its potential impact on the UK auto industry specifically, right? Mm-hmm. You were in Europe. I mean, you're based in the Netherlands yeah. during this whole Brexit fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> How were some of the multinationals that you speak with in Europe feeling about this whole no Brexit situation and the potential implications from a trade perspective, right? It led to a lot of uncertainty. I mean, you have to remember that for a very long period of time, you know, the trade, and that still obviously exists between the other EU countries, but then also prior to Brexit, including the UK, there were no custom you know, rules to be applied. You would only look at customs when you would import into the EU mm-hmm. and then you have a you know, free movement of goods within the EU. That once of a sudden, and also you know, all the custom rules and, and also the way the authorities were organized were you know, on that principle. Uh, and that once of a sudden changed. And you know, the, both from a UK perspective, as from you know, the EU perspective, they had to put in place all sorts of procedures in order to deal with that. So that already alone led to a lot of uncertainty. What was the administrative burden going to look like? You know, the cost of you know, having to import, export again to and from the UK. And then, of course, the whole, this whole long period of, was it two, three years, where it was uncertain whether the UK and EU were to be able to reach a deal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was, as we all know, only at the very last minute they were able to you know, close a deal that at least avoided that duties are actually applied. But there is still, even now, you know, what is it? We talk March 2021. There is uncertainty on the procedures to be applied. For example, though it's slightly, well, it's maybe not 100% related to this, but if you as an individual buy a good from a UK company online, let's say, you know, UK companies will say, we're not delivering goods right now to any EU country because we don't know what the procedures are. We don't know what we need to do in order to fulfill the new administrative rules. So there is still this uncertainty. And then there is... You know, all the because of the administrative burden, there are now very you know much longer queues at the ferries. You know, going to the UK from the UK, crossing the channel, leading to a lot of additional cost to 
European countries or EU entities, companies, but also to, to British companies. So, you know, look at the car industry, as you, you mentioned that, and that was also in, in your article, is that right, right. You know, a company like Nissan, you know, it said in 2019 it would shut down its facilities in the UK, or at least part of it. Jaguar Land Rover wanted to increase production in Slovakia, specific to the EU production, I would say. And although the effect of duties is now avoided because there is a deal, there is still, I think, this perception among multinationals that they actually will move facilities from or to the UK, depending on you know, how you look at it, to be more flexible in, in their supply chain. Clearly, tariffs affect profitability. I thought it was fascinating you know, I know you were saying that it's not necessarily directly related that users or consumers were not able to buy products because companies were not, uh, did not understand how to apply the rules as they stand. But, you know, it's an important point to make that even though tariffs are not a direct consumer tax, it still impacts the prices that consumers pay, right? The tariffs Absolutely. impact the cost. I mean, it's, it's a cost of... You know, ultimately, the production of goods, and one way or another, either it eats, you know, the profit of the company, the group that's producing the good, or it increases the price that the consumer has to pay for it. And I think, you know, that's if you look at it again in a more broader perspective, that obviously was always over the last what is it, 20, 30, 40 years, the whole goal of countries to, as part of the globalization of, of economies to get rid of tariffs or customs as much as they as they could because it 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 it, it had this enormous impact either on profits of companies or on prices of products for the you know the consumers. And I think that is something which companies now again and probably also consumers start to realize that hey you know if tariffs again are being applied by countries, whether it's you know on the US side or in relation to the UK and the EU or in any other country relationship, it does have an impact. It's a cost. You know, what's interesting about this, but because it's all about controlling costs, right? Like I, yeah. I think multinationals over this past year, they've learned to diversify their supply chain because of the disruptions in business as a result of the pandemic. But I also think that gives them more flexibility when we think about potential tariffs to be levied in the future. Yeah, I think it, it has triggered you know, that companies really start to think about it again, to that, you know, as part of the, the called again, the globalization of economies so over the past decades, a lot of companies were very much focused on, okay, we only maybe have manufacturing activities in one or two countries because that's where... We can do that, you know, at low cost and, you know, it's good for the companies. But you now start to realize that depending on political situations, you know, countries applying tariffs or on other non-economical circumstances, COVID, it may actually impact their supply chain. And they, they start to realize that actually in order to go forward basis, it might be in the interest or it will be in the interest of companies to have a more, you know, that they have to look at having their activities, manufacturing activities more in 
numerous countries or more you know, spread around the globe to, to meet um, consumer demand, ultimately, of course, but also in order to have a supply chain that, that is flexible to deal with that and that they are not impacted immediately by that. You know, look at the pharmaceutical industry you know, mm-hmm. where most of the pharmaceuticals produce their medicines, especially vaccines, out of India or China. You know, you are as a company becoming very dependent on that. And now certainly in the EU, and I'm, I'm sure also in the United States and other parts of the world, companies are now looking at, hey, should we not have well, a company policy about having more manufacturing activities spread around multiple countries rather than focusing in on just one or two countries as it may be you know, triggering significant higher cost or actually have a significant impact on the supply chain. Look at COVID. It, 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 it's, it's fascinating, right? Because when we think about transfer pricing and just getting to the right price and, and multinationals would do a lot of planning around you know, transfer pricing in terms of managing their global effective tax rate, tariffs are not part of the global effective tax rate, but it's a part of the cost that relates to this. And so it's more so around controlling costs. So Hasker, I was actually thinking, right? I mean, we, we talk about tariffs and, you know, tariffs are, and transfer pricing are at different line items, right? Different tax line items. And a tariff or an imposition of a new tariff based on the supplier could ultimately have an impact to the cost base in a transfer pricing analysis, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you, you worked at a large multinational before. I mean, are those types of things you considered when you were looking at your transfer pricing policy? Were tariffs at the top of mind? No, not really. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, as we you know, discussed previously, there was a long period of time when tariffs were, you know, countries were really trying to come to agreement to avoid tariffs altogether because they were seen as a disruption into you know, globalization of the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I can only speak of myself in my own experience, but I think for, you know, a lot of multinationals, you know, they were not really considered, maybe with exception of those working, you know, in, in steel industry or very specific industries that always, to some extent, had to deal with customs. But now they obviously, you know, are being applied on, on a much wider, you know, group of products. And also on more consumer-type goods. Right. I think I saw that UK list of tariffs and it was like, hundred different line items with all sorts of different percentages attached to it. So yeah. it's very explicit. And, and obviously it, it is an important point because, I mean, tax professionals certainly, you know, when specializing in transpricing, always want to look at how can we optimize pricing also from a tax perspective. But then you typically only look at, at corporate income tax, so, you know, the tax on profits. And tariffs obviously can play, just like withholding tax actually in certain situations, can actually play an important role in how to optimize your pricing. Because if you don't 
consider them and you only look at it from a direct tax perspective and tariffs do apply, it can have a, a serious impact. In interrupting one more time for our second CPE code word, and that code word is operational, as in this battle station is fully operational. I'm kidding. It's actually operational functioning. That is actually a big part of what we've been talking about today and seems like a more appropriate reference for this show other than Star Wars. Anyway, back to our conversation. Star Wars jokes aside. The second CPE code word for today's episode is operational. Yeah, and I don't know whether or not this is something to consider because how likely is it that the tariffs are going to be adjusted, which then could lead to sort of cascading adjustments that could also impact transfer pricing and then ultimately double taxation. Do you see that cascade happen a lot? Well, you know, it, it, you need to look at you know, any post-year adjustments and or transfer pricing audits, you know, can lead to double taxation. If adjustments are not being accepted by either the customs authorities or the tax authorities, you know, you can change, you can change the transfer price on, on impacted goods, you know, and also depending on which party will actually incur the cost of the tariffs, and tax authorities might actually question. So if that is happening from a customs perspective, so custom authorities change the price, you, know, you need to really look at, okay, but is that also gonna be acceptable for the tax authorities? Will they actually view that adjustment? If you were to apply that also for income tax purposes, will they view that adjustment as still to be at arm's length? So it's, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, you have to look at each transaction in detail, look at all the facts, circumstances, look at the impacted you know, goods transaction, you know, look at who, who's bearing the cost, what's the impact of any you know, change on the price. And that also works vice versa. So if tax authorities adjust as part of a transfer pricing audit, the transfer price, you know, what's the impact of that on the customs duty value for customs? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but even without, let's say, a challenge from authority, even, you know, because that is what what's actually happening, you know, a lot within companies, multinational companies, is that they, prior to the year end, they will already, let's say, in Q4 or in month 12 of the year, they will look at, you know, how the transfer pricing is for that transaction throughout the year. And if needed in order to be aligned with and compliant with their own transfer pricing policy, they, they want to, you know, potentially want to post, you know, adjustments in order to, to be compliant and therefore at arm's length. But, you know, any of those prior year end adjustments for transfer pricing purposes also have to be considered for customs duties in the sense of, hey, do they do, if I make an adjustment on a intercompany goods transaction because I want it to be at arm's length, does that adjustment, what's the impact of that for you know, custom duties? Right. And I bet in some situations, a taxpayer will look at that calculation and if it's favorable, maybe apply for that adjustment or for that credit, if you will. But if it's unfavorable, maybe they don't look at it. Yeah. 
Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Once again, a lot of jurisdictions treat these two areas very distinctly, right? And they don't have these two government bodies speaking with one another. But I think China is sort of that exception to the rule. I don't know if you've heard of any other countries that are having these two groups communicate with one another better, right? So that these types of issues can be resolved accordingly, right? So that if a transfer pricing tax examiner were to levy an adjustment or and make some sort of assessment that they would communicate it to the customs duties officers as well and to say, hey, by the way, we made this adjustment on the prices. Maybe you should go look at that too, because that could have an impact to the actual tariffs to be levied as well. I mean, China obviously is a is a special case, if you want to call it like that. They they, you know, have no one can them. see me, but yeah, it's like the air quotes special case, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's they obviously focus a lot on compliance, compliance with their own rules and regulations, which not necessarily are, you know, in line with you know what other countries would view as to be acceptable. But you know, in China, the general administration of customs, the GAC, you know, has amended its import and export declaration form template. It requires importers to disclose all related party transactions and state you know, the values of the imported goods and how they affected prices between parties. And that information is shared with the call it the income tax authorities. So, you know, in China, you need to really, really have a process in place that, that ensures that you are compliant with the tax rules, but also with the custom regulations, because you do know they are, as you mentioned, they do communicate with each other. So you you cannot just ignore one or the other. If you have a you know a transfer pricing adjustment, or you 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 have a change in your transfer price, also because, for example, if you change your overall business model, you have changed your your overall you know function and risk profile in relation to your Chinese entity, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you actually better be sure you've also looked at that and have considered the impact of it from a customs perspective because you you know they will you know communicate with each other. So you will also be questioned on the impact of that from a customs perspective. 
Yeah, but it is it is challenging though, right? Because I think the difference between the customs valuation and the transfer pricing being, you know, one is looking at the holistic view of the intercompany dealings on an annual basis versus that point of time calculation, right? For customs yeah. services. And that's that's obviously not only a attention point, concern, you know, whatever you want to call it, while looking at it from a Chinese perspective, but that's that's an overall issue, you know, the difference in, as we talked about earlier in, in this call, about for transfer pricing purposes, you look at the transactions more you know, overall within the financial year, so the total volume of transactions, whereas for customs, you look at on a transaction basis, on a, you know, when did the shipment come in and each and every transaction also coming from a specific country, obviously because tariffs are applied on a country to country perspective. Mm -hmm. Whereas for transfer pricing, you look at the the profit of the company, you know, as a total. And that includes maybe, so if, if a company is purchasing goods from various manufacturing entities within the group for transfer pricing purposes you are still looking at it you know more overall on a profit level whereas for custom purposes you have to not only look at a per transaction basis per shipment but also where did that shipment came from from which entity because it obviously makes a difference from a you know a customs point of view yeah no definitely and i i wonder i mean sort of food for thought right Given the state of where we're going from a transfer pricing perspective and what all these different jurisdictions are trying to accomplish and, you know, the true definition of a transactional net margin method, do you think that tax authorities could potentially want to see these intercompany dealings on a more transactional basis? Or is that going to be, you know, sort of too much, right? Well, for certain companies, it might be too much. I think, you know, if you... If you have thousands of transactions with you know, tens of different manufacturing entities around the globe within your group, it might lead to a you know, significant increase in your compliance burden. If you also, for transfer pricing purposes, have to analyze each and every transaction separately, mm-hmm. that's yeah. I mean that that obviously will have a serious impact on the on the compliance burden and you know i think from the tax authorities perspective again from the income tax perspective authorities obviously they do want to look at per type of transaction and want to get comfortable that per that type of transaction the entity that they are looking at that the price is at arm's length but are they really interested in to understand whether if the shipments come in on a monthly basis they want to understand what the price is on a per monthly basis for income tax purposes. I'm, I'm not sure. Whereas for customs, obviously, that is the case. They look right. at it, per, in my example, every month. And prices might also differ, obviously, month per month. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you are talking about commodities, though, right, we are already yeah. applying the transfer pricing rules like that when you think about commodities, because timing has an impact to that. In interrupting once again for our third and final CPE code word, and that code word is policy, as in policy objectives. Again, third and final CPE code word, and that code word is policy. Back to our conversation. 
So let's let's talk about tariffs and comparability for a second. So yeah. then, you know, when we think about how tariffs impact the transfer prices, right? Is that something you think taxpayers should be mindful in terms of comparability and, and identifying and trying to control for that factor when you're looking for third-party benchmarks? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but there is also a challenge to that, obviously. You know, first on, on the point, do you need to consider that? I would say yes, because let's say you are you're looking at an American, a, a U.S. company that imports a certain product and on that import there is a tariff applied mm-hmm. and you want to test from a transfer pricing perspective the arm's length nature of that price and you look at you know comparable companies that you know you, you, well you need to understand whether for these comparable companies actually whether these companies were also subject to tariffs you know if you have right. a 25% tariff applied on your on the import of your product, that does have a serious impact on you know, the profit or on the cost or both, and therefore on how to be able to look at that comparable and its, you know, its profit levels, financials, to determine whether actually you, know, you can actually compare it and how does that impact the arm's length range that you calculate that you want to use to test your intercompany transaction. So, yes, we look at it, but that also brings the challenge is that when you do a comparable search and you do a economic analysis looking at the financials of these comparable entities that you found, how do you know, how do you determine whether any of those transactions that are included for that comparable were subject to tariffs. That's right. That level of detail is not actually always available, right? Yeah, you don't know. I mean, if 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 you have a company in there, I mean, you do not necessarily have access to where they obtained their products from. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that is a challenge. But do you think that perhaps trying to control for that? I mean. What if we were able to at least try to isolate and identify local comparables? Could that help to alleviate some of that noise? I was thinking about that because, I mean, if you, again, in the example of a, a U.S. company that imports a specific type of product. Let's say steel. <laughs> let's say steel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and you do look at, at let's, let's say, okay, we wanted to take the U.S. company as a tested party and we are only going to look for U.S. comparables. Yes. Then still, you will find it challenging to get enough information on these companies to determine whether these companies were subject to tariffs as well. Sure. And, and I forgot to mention that, even if you were to be able to determine whether they are engaged in transactions that were subject to a tariff, you don't know or don't necessarily know how within that group maybe or within that transaction it was between the two parties engaged in that transaction how they contractually agreed who's actually bearing the cost right right yeah is it the cost that you know the manufacturer in that you know independent transaction you know or the supplier in some situations yeah Yeah. agreed also when you look at local comparables that is something still 
yeah, a big challenge, I would say. Well, you know, I think that that actually highlights the importance of an industry analysis, right? And in a lot of ways, the local industry analysis, because at least getting a sense of understanding on a broader scale, multinationals operating using, in this example, the steel industry, Haskar, right? You know, what is the traditional or what is the typical approach? Are most of them sourcing steel from X number of countries? And do they have a lot of concentration risk from a supplier perspective? And a lot of that can be flushed out in perhaps looking at a, a more robust country-specific industry analysis. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's also interesting to look at it. You know, you do obviously now hear a lot of companies talk about, you know, hey, we need to be more diverse in where we have our manufacturing. You know, we need to be flexible because, you know, the, the impact of tariffs or things like COVID can have a very, you know, serious impact on our supply chain. But you obviously also have certain industries where, you don't have that level of flexibility. And the example I always like to use is, let's say you are a producer of French wine. Mm. Um, Love that. Very very (laughs) nice, obviously. And you, as a French wine producer, you sell that to a distribution entity in the US. And let's just say, for argument's sake, that the US were to apply a tariff on that. It's not that you can change your supply chain you, know, you can't say I'm going to change my production of French wine to a different country. Right. Uh, it's no longer French wine anymore. Right. Um, it's no longer so a Bordeaux, right? It's no longer a Bordeaux for which you can charge whatever amount of you know, US dollars per bottle. You know, you're more stuck to locations than maybe in other industries. So, yeah, it's, it's, it does not only apply, obviously, to, you know, the traditional you know, the well-known examples like steel industry or, mm-hmm. um, but it, it can obviously, you know, impact also other industries. And, and I think, you know, what, what really I think was a wake-up call, I think, from many multinationals is that tariffs is very much a political instrument. Yeah. It can simply be applied by an administration because, I don't know, they in their relationship with a specific country or whatever their political views are, they impose a tariff. And it can have a serious impact on the profit level of of a company. Right. Hence, we hear the term retaliatory tariff, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 They applied this tariff as a retaliation for, you know, for, for China applying a tariff on the U.S., for example, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it has a geopolitical background. You, know, you do not do what I want you to do, therefore I punish you. Or, yep. hey, I want to... Really... Without going so far as to apply a <laughs> sanction, right? So, <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing you brought up that was fascinating that I think we should just talk about briefly was the, the fact that, hey, the imposition of tariffs doesn't always mean that the tariff payor, at least contractually, would be the buyer or the supplier. Because contractually, I guess the supplier could true it up such that they're the ones incurring the cost, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tariff is levied from the company that imports the good. You know, that's how it works. But that doesn't mean that that entity is also really bearing the cost. That is something that you can contractually agree with the supplier. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously... 
there is an interesting link with transfer pricing in the sense that you have to look at what the relationship is between those two entities within the group to determine how you are able to allocate you know, who's going to bear the cost. For example, if you have a, you know, a contract manufacturer that is selling goods to, to a, a sales and distribution entity who then also imports the good and who is subject to the, the tariff. And in that intercompany agreement, it is stipulated that contract manufacturing operates as contract manufacturer, limited risk, right. and does not bear contractually the risk of any duties being levied. Yeah. You are obviously very limited in your allocation of the cost because then, yeah, contractually, it is a cost for the importer, in this case, a distribution entity, in that transaction. So I think tax authorities will very critically look at that function and risk analysis. So what other functions performs, but also who bears certain risks in order to determine where should the cost fall, who's bearing the cost. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways it could be, I guess, taxpayers could argue to apply an adjustment to their cost of goods sold, right? Based on these contractual arrangements for who bears the cost of the terrorists. So that's an interesting, interesting point that we don't see a lot of practitioners apply today. But I think that we may see some more implications of that and from a future basis as as customs and transfer pricing as they may begin to align. We'll see. Yeah. You know, we've talked about the challenges of of tariffs and and sort of this divergence from transfer pricing, and that creates more complexity, right? But what are some of the strategies that we can help our listeners deploy? Well, I would say I think the main strategy is to be prepared, you know, to be prepared, you know, because most companies do have a very good, and that's also, for example, my background, you know, a a tax controversy management policy, Mm -hmm. you know, have your documentation in place, be able to have everything, uh, all the explanations in place, all your pricing calculations in place, have a process in place on who is responsible in, in handling questions, have training on, on the people on, on, on your team, prepare your offices for any dawn rates, you know, these type of procedural steps. But you should also have that in place for for custom duty audits, to call it like that, for certain countries. Depends, of course, on the type of transactions you have within a group. So that's something I would say is certainly should be part of your overall audit management strategy. Good advice. And, you know, based on your experience, which department internally typically handled the customs? Because when I was at MUFG, it wasn't necessarily the tax department. It was a very operational department, right? Yeah, my background obviously is also from a service, you know, services organization. So you don't really have to deal with with customs. But you know, also talking to other people, I think traditionally it would sit somewhere in the finance organization, but not necessarily the tax department. Right. Whereas I think, and I would certainly advise from a tax audit management perspective to and because of the, the impact that it has on transfer pricing which is a direct tax element 
is that it should sit within the tax department. Or at least there should be a very close coordination. So that if someone outside of the tax department deals with customs within a group, that that person should work very closely together and align with the team within the tax department that deals with transfer pricing and with you know tax audit management because they are very aligned as we have you know discussed during you know this conversation yep that is very wise advice all right awesome thank you so much Hasker. as always yep. it's a pleasure a global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Thank you so much for being with us today, Hosker. That was a very enlightening discussion. Now we have time for my favorite part of the show, which is a rapid fire round of a little bit more personal questions, a little bit less transfer pricing. And we call this what we want to know, but always question one. Are you ready? I am ready. Excellent. What element of transfer pricing continues to fascinate you? Well, the fact that it's not black and white, it's not an you know exact science. There is always room for interpretation uh, it's more like an art form so that really fascinates me where is the first place you'll travel once restrictions are lifted italy amen to that i was actually thinking of that too <laughs> <laughs> we're actually planning for our summer break to go to italy if obviously covid allows it yes 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 and here's hoping how have you seen transfer pricing gain traction and attention over the span of your career well, the fact that it gained traction, I think, over the last five to seven years you know, is really an understatement. It is, uh, you know, it's, it's in the top three of attention points, not only of tax departments, but of companies as such and governments. As, as some people say, um, over the last five, seven years, more has changed and developed in transfer pricing than in the previous 50 years. So... It's one of the most looked at elements of uh, taxation right now, I would say. What are three things you can always find on your desk? My glasses, which tells you a little bit about my age. I couldn't do without them anymore. Uh, reading, you know, the screen of my laptop. A cup of coffee, either empty or full right now. It's pretty empty. And, uh, you know, from a professional side, obviously, I will have always at hand, you know, things like the OECD. Transfer guidelines, the action plans coming out of BEPS, you know, always be ready if questions are being asked on, uh, on that. So that's always on my desk. And what's one pandemic survival tip that has gotten you through the past year? <laughs> well, take it easy. 
Um, <laughs> you know, there is not much. There is not much you can do about certain things. Now, the fact that you know you're limited in your freedom to go or to to, to go to a shop, or whatever. I mean, you can feel very frustrated about it, but it doesn't help you. So just take it as it is and you know get through it and stay safe. Yeah, stay safe. Amen to that. And finally, what can the Rolling Stones 1972 album Exile on Main Street tell us about Internet? I'm kidding. You always suggest that as a podcast episode, and I'm still intent on maybe making that work because I do understand what what Exile on Main Street can can say about transfer pricing. It tells you something about taxation. Yes, especially versus customs. Well, it tells you about taxation because... Exile Main Street was recorded by the Rolling Stones in the south of France. You know why? The reason is because they had to get out of Britain yep. to avoid taxation on their income for that year. That's the reason why they recorded it in the south of France. That, that's right. And we want to thank both Hosker and Mimi for being on today's show and giving us wonderful insight into the wide worlds, plural, of tariffs in transfer pricing, somewhat mutually exclusive, but in many ways, lots of crossover, as we've learned on today's show. We want to thank everyone at home as well for tuning in. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and there you can find our short-form Transfer Pricing in the News podcast. That's the Fiona Show hot off the press. Also, if you think you might be leaving money on the table by not acting on a R&D tax credit where you have operations... We have a new podcast for you, and that's Fiona's R&D Tax Credits Podcast. Learn everything you need to know. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host this podcast. I'm doing a little bit less editing and engineering. That's falling a little bit more on Andrew O'Donnell these days, who does a great job. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. As always, folks, stay safe, wear a mask, and we can see each other very soon. Until next week, we'll catch you then.